You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak with the CEOs from established security giants to up-and-coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a cybersecurity company tick. I'm your host, Mark Fonzadeloff, the CEO of Devo, and today my guest is Daydre Diamond, a well-known entrepreneur in the cyber community, CEO and founder of CyberSN. And CyberSN is a talent-matching company that connects cybersecurity professionals to jobs that are a perfect fit. Uh, she's also the founder of Secure Diversity, a not-for-profit organization that specializes in addressing the cybersecurity diversity gap, which we've talked about before on this podcast. Uh, Deidre, welcome to the show. Great to be here. As everybody can probably expect based on that intro, today we're going to focus a little bit on your background, obviously, and your story, which I'm, I'm excited to get to know. Uh, we both are in the New England area, but uh, we've only met virtually. So I'm excited to get to know more about your background, uh, but we will focus on talent and where and how to find it and hire it. And also towards the end, Adrian and I will talk a little bit about Black Hat, where Devo and CyberSN are going to collaborate to help people think about their careers and how to how to change careers in cybersecurity. So first, I, I do want to step back because I always just I I love humans, right? And you are one of them, and you are a CEO of a cyber company, and I want to know how you kind of got there. So we're going to step right back to where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Orange County, California, specifically Irvine in my high school, college days. Very nice. And t- today you're in a, in a cabin in New Hampshire, I think. <laughs> Long story now that I'm 52 of how that all happened. But uh, yeah, it's my summer. Actually, you know, here quite a bit up in the lake region of New Hampshire. It's a beautiful place. So growing up out in California, um, What's what's the first meaningful job you had? So this is fascinating, and, I, and people never expect it. Uh, so at 15, I was able to get into a program to become a manicurist through the high school program. And at 16, I got my license. My stepfather was a hairdresser. My mother was an L.A. City school teacher, commuted, and they had hair salons. So at 16, I was able to start making, and this is in the 80s, $65 an hour, because that's that's what it was for a full set of nails back then. There was no, you know, sort of business of that other than, you know, that bigger dollars. And so, yeah, I did manicuring acrylic nails through high school, college, and my first year in uh, my career until my boss was like, what do you do? I don't know. 65 bucks an hour is crazy money. And uh, I, you know, whenever I talk about this on the show, I was a caddy and I would probably tell people I made $65 around, but around was four hours and I was carrying two bags. So that you, you got me completely. So if acrylics were harder and it took time and you had to make it from scratch, you know, like being an artist, but still, oh yeah. It was bank. I mean, I did it for the first year of out of college until I gave it up. You know, I, I think I would allude it to probably my friends that were working as bartenders. But not at 65 bucks an hour or two hours. Depending on where. Yeah. 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 Depending on where. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I trust me, I know. I was 
I was rolling in the dough thanks to that. <laughs> and, and I certainly didn't want to give it up. I definitely didn't want to be a manicurist. You know, the interesting piece is this. I'm number seven and um, uh, in my family, and my parents never really even talked to me about college. Meanwhile, my brother's going to Yale, who's older than me. The other one's, you know, working at my other brother's, my dad's company. <laughs> and and uh, they thought, well, you were just making so much money. When I look back and I say, how come you didn't encourage me to go to college? Like, well, you were making so much money and you, you know, loved what you were doing. I'm like, I loved it because I was making money, not because I want to do it for the rest of my life. Thank goodness. Yeah. Wow. I was the baby of only two. So, uh, very different. I saw that you graduated uh, as a criminal justice major from Cal State Fullerton. So any influence in your life that had, or that you ended up kind of a little bit fighting cybercrime later? Totally. Totally. I mean, out of college, I wasn't able to figure out how to utilize it. Uh, you know, I did social work for a little bit and found that really not my thing because nobody wanted me to hold them accountable. <laughs> and I, I couldn't be in a system where you couldn't do that. Uh, it took me a while to find the cyber community and find my way. But I was going to be a criminal attorney. 2007, when I became the first VP of sales at Rapid7, uh, I was like finding my home. I'm protectors and smart and driven, uh, you know, and they liked me. And so joining forces with you all uh, has been great for me. Yeah, there's a mission to it, right? I mean, I know that when I was at IBM years ago and we were forming this division, I had many non-security people coming into IBM security because we were growing so quickly. We just were hiring from within. And I remember a particular one long-term IBM colleague just said he got into the division and just felt there was a mission and a purpose and like a like a religion. He, I remember he said it was like a religion of cyber. And I, I guess from criminal justice into cyber, it's it's a very similar mission. You know, purpose is one of the best feelings of life. It's the, really what keeps us young and uh, strong. So uh, for me, it was great. I mean, I loved servicing tech in general, but it, it's not the, it wasn't the same as protecting, you know, like protectors is our community. But so um, you talked about Rapid7, but uh, just taking a step first, you uh, in 1994, which must have been, because we are basically the same age, must have been your first job out of college. You spent quite a bit of time uh, in staffing and recruiting at uh, Stride and Associates. So, so that's how you started. Did they recruit on campus and you kind of, it was, and that was in California? So I did social work for three months. It's not on my resume as I got let go because I was writing up all the people. So, but anyhow, yes. Uh, and then I went to Stride, which is now Motion Recruitment. Um, they're almost a billion dollar agency. Um, and those founders found me in Orange County and they had written a, a little ad in the paper that said, can you think on their feet? And the agency was small at the time. I was number 18 or 19 and three little offices. And, uh, um, that was my first job and, uh, I was with them for 21 years, but 13 years at motion. And, uh, we built it to 89 million in five years of me walking in. It was sort of the end of that air, last recession that was, you know, coming out and I came in and everybody, everything just took off and we built, uh, we built 36 offices in five years and 500 recruiters and trained and developed people from scratch and just built a very successful business. Clearly, it's super successful still today. And uh, it was the baseline of everything I have today. Yeah. And you must have had, like, I mean, at that time, I was myself 
getting into strategy consulting here in Harvard Square. And uh, I remember just, you, you, you must have, like me, had some mentors and people that really, you know, you must look back and be like, wow, that, those people really showed me the way. Because when you're, I mean, you're 21, 22 years old, you didn't figure all this out by yourself, right? No, they were, that's those guys and the few people that they had already built for a few years before I got there. And those people are still running uh, motion today. It's really powerful story that we all were trained and developed in, which is that you pay it forward, you train and develop people, you care for your people and you give them skills. And they did. And they trained me from the minute I walked in, uh, you know, for a solid good, you know, five years of training. And then I took over and ran things and did all of that for others and consistently have. And, you know, as I grew under them and became vice president of Rapid7 and then CEO of another software company they owned. It was, um, you know, less about teaching and more about working together, you know, in other, in other ways, not being operational for them. And so, yeah, there is no way I would be sitting here uh, without that kind of a program. And that's why I do what I do is, you know, helping organizations figure out how to do that for themselves too, never mind the matching. Right. Every head of talent and talent acquisition I've had, including the one that we have here is a fantastic guy. Um, they all seem to have skill sets fairly close to some of my sales leaders. And you as well pivoted from this role at Stride or Motion over to Rapid7, but you went into a sales role. So does that confirm my suspicion that those skill sets are a little bit transferable? And, and why did you make that jump into vice president of sales at Rapid7, 2007 to 2011, you were there? Yeah, totally. Uh, sales is is the same <laughs> as dying, you know, like recruiting, getting people to listen to you, getting people to, uh, you know, take your solutions uh, and implement them is uh, sales. And so when I was asked to become Rapid7's VP of sale, it was because I was operating at a $19,000 ASP in five days and I was running machines of doing good business and solving problems for clients with that kind of a turn. And it was literally printing cash. And this is before the digital era and everybody's running full desk. But anyhow, so I took that model into Rapid7 and we were the first to build that out in uh, that inside sales model. And we were selling up to 200,000 on the phone. Uh, so yeah, it was, I left because I wanted opportunity. There was others at the, you know, uh, running, <laughs> running things that, um, and I wanted more as we all did. And that's what we did. We would grow other businesses. And so we would transfer people between companies that this was, um, my shot to do that. And, uh, I'm so glad I did it. Wow. That is, that is awesome. And, um, do you, you still keep up with some of the, the folks that are there, Corey and, and the team? Yeah. Oh Yeah. Uh, yeah, Corey came in two years after me to be the first VP of marketing. Uh, that's, uh, you know, how far back we go. And so we worked side by side for the last two years that I was there. And he was certainly instrumental with the work that we did with HD Moore and Metasploit coming in. And uh, that was beneficial. But, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, so then you 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 got your first uh, I believe then your first CEO job in 2011 running uh, percussion software. Yeah, yeah, that was hard. <laughs> that was that was really hard. It was a restart. I'd never done a restart. Every the first two companies I was number 18 or number 19, and 
just excelled and, and, um, grew, uh, hundreds of people underneath me. Uh, so this was a restart content management. It was hard and, uh, learned a ton and, uh, and yet didn't have a lot of passion for it, uh, you know, after three years and, and, uh, neither did the marketplace, you know, content management can cut, has kind of sailed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so anyhow, yeah, I took a sabbatical and, thought about what I wanted to do. I bought a camper, a 42 foot camper that hauled and hauled something. I didn't drive it, but, uh, and, you know, drove around the national parks for six months thinking, you know, what do I want to do next? And I just, I loved both my recruiting time. I mean, solving those problems for clients, being such a, you know, great agency for clients, but I, and I loved my cyber people. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to put these two together. And so after being out of staffing for 10 years, I got back in it, which is a whole nother story of what I discovered and all the, I left staffing for 10 years and came back nine years ago. Yeah. And I, I want to switch around the order a little bit. Tell us about getting, uh, starting Cyber Ascend. I think we should start there because that's around 2014 you started that. Tell us what was the impetus? Like you said, you're in a camper, you're thinking about life. And uh, I, I took six months off before this job. And those are powerful moments that I have encouraged other people to take if you if you can do it. It's super helpful. But so you, you started Cyber Ascend. Tell us about it and, and why you started it. Yeah, it, I chewed so much gum on that sabbatical, by the way, that I can never chew gum again. Like, can you imagine going from talking all day to like not talking? I found myself chewing. Isn't that fascinating? Chewing the gum. And I chewed it so much I can never chew it again. Uh, so yeah, a lot of thinking going on while chewing that gum and uh, a lot of people calling too, right? <laughs> you know, wanting to do things. And so I started talking to people. And when I did, I went to Black Hat actually. And, um, uh, really realized while I was at Black Hat, how many people were talking to me about their pain of finding talent. I was there thinking I would do another software company because I was already doing that. And, you know, not that I didn't like the staffing, but, um, it just wasn't on the top of my mind as much as software was. Uh, and then I realized, you know what, nobody's surfacing these people. All my friends are like telling me how they're struggling in their roles because, you know, they don't have people. And I thought that's ridiculous. This, let me get into, let me see if I can solve this. So that's how it happened. And, um, you know, lucky enough to have had lots of people that I've worked with that have enjoyed me and wanted to come work with me again. And so, in fact, my first person, Don Sines, is with me today. And, you know, a lot of tenure here and certainly, um, you know, we're a tech company. We're not a staffing firm. Well, yeah. And, and you guys, I think the the secret sauce is you kind of came up with a taxonomy for both sides of the equation, right? For the person and the job. And then, and then are able to do some matching. That's the core, the core, well, I don't know the core, but that's at the core, right? It is at the core because the, well, the matching is the same for both, or the taxonomy is the same for both a professional and employer, but the noise in the market, the reason job searching is broken is because people have to talk to each other and sometimes talk to each other more than once and talk to multiple people before we even know if it's a possible fit. And we're in 2023 and it's literally uh, a vulnerability in itself, how this all is happening. And so, yeah, that's where the noise is. That's where the problem is. And we built a platform 
that solves that. Now we're on to scale. And when I mean solve, we offer five people and we do a placement. Like that's not, you know, that's yeah, it. So the ratios are totally oh, different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not just the taxonomy that we match on or it wouldn't work. It's, you know, that's one thing, a common language for cybersecurity jobs. That's one thing. And and our, our taxonomy is respected by NICE. It's in their path works, right? Like it's legit. That's one thing. You also have to match on location. You have to match on money. You have to match. Money is one of the hardest things, right? And so when I say five, I'm talking qualified and interested because the money, the location, the job, any degree matching, it's all been done. And, you know, look, as professionals, which we all are, we can do that ourselves, you know, meaning you can self-select a job when all that data is put in front of you. So, you know, part of the problem we've all had is we've sort of taken that away from when you could look at the newspaper and and know if it was a job that you were qualified and interested in. Nowadays, you look at a job, you don't know if you're qualified and interested. There's, there's no data there. We even put money in the print jobs, you know, ads back in the day. You don't even see it in ads today. Everybody's trying to negotiate. <laughs> well, so so if I take a step back then to maybe this whole where we're at today with talent and, and maybe I'll start on a personal level and I don't know if it's the recession, but um, I have, I, I get a lot of invitations on LinkedIn as I'm sure you do, but I think it seems like half the invitations now are from people in the talent space looking to connect to me because they want to offer me, you know, a very talented person in the Midwest who's hit the last eight quarters and would be perfect for Devo. And it just seems like, uh, you know, it seems like they have nothing to do right now or something. Like, is there is there a huge, uh, you know, supply, demand misalignment? That's why they're all spending their time on LinkedIn. What's the, what's the current state of this market? Yeah. When a recession hits, that means two things. It means um, companies are going to lay off and or put jobs on hold, new jobs, right? Like any new planning of jobs. So when those two things happen, recruiters are going to be hit. What do you need recruiters for if you're putting jobs on hold and or laying off? Probably don't need as many as you have. So they're always the first to go in that situation. Right now, we've got a bit of a double whammy happening, which is myself and lots of people out there have been trying to get rid of recruiters, meaning replace them with call it AI, call it, you know, job matching platform, you know, call it whatever we want. But that whole, you know, problem is something that people have been looking at for a while. And um, and so I think organizations are playing with those things too, uh, because it's not that you can replace once you have qualified and interested, you still need somebody to manage the qualified and interested to close the the interviews, the feedback, the supporting the problems that come up and solving them during the process and negotiations and offers and all that. You still need what could be called a recruiter in somebody's firm, could be called HR, whatever it is. You still need that person, but you don't need or want is the matching. Now people, so people are playing with that and figuring that out, but there's no question that recruiters were first. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Okay. That, yeah. that explains it. And, and the other thing to keep in mind is that in recessions, perm goes down 
like perm placements, FTEs, excuse me, my slang, FTE work goes way down and contract work goes up. So that's also what's happening is that anybody that was doing perm, and even for my own agency, right, we see the same thing. And I, I, you know, so when perm goes down, that hits recruiters that are doing perm placements, FTE placements. So you have a lot of data based on the scale of your platform. Walk us through just you know, some of the trends and roles that are out there. You know, where, is, where is the biggest uh, supply demand by quantity, by mismatch? Yeah, this is one of my funnest things to talk about these days because this data is oh, just under a year in my fingertips. Uh, so just about a year ago, we started uh, hosting and posting all jobs in, that are posted in the last 45 days, and you can find them at CyberSM, and we organize them and match them to profiles that professionals have, and so it makes them easier experience. They're not all in our taxonomy yet, but there's a full plan to make that happen in motion right now, and when they're in the taxonomy, it'll be even better. But for now, uh, that data gives me so much information. And so, of course, I started to see this economic downturn last June. I felt it instantly then. And and again, having been in many recessions, sort of know the signs uh, in staffing. And and so the, the data shows exactly what all of us felt when things, you know, sort of came to a halt, when they started to go back up a little, when they dropped again, right? Remember the end of last year is when it, you know, October, it hit us hard, right? Hit them, hit us, hit everybody hard. We saw it in June, it hit in October. And then Q4 was slow and low, right? And then people came out of January, February, everything kind of started to go up again. And then we saw it drop again, right? And so, you know, all of that shows in the job posting data. Because the postings are 45 days or less. So we see that roles that are compliance oriented are staying steady. They're not drops. The drops are um, roles that are less compliance oriented. So, um, for instance, we see uh, the CISO roles staying steady. Uh, and yet you see a lot of disruption, but it's not, it doesn't mean that people aren't looking for them. Right. They're, they're, they're right? backfilling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're, yeah. And they're moving, uh, you know, a little bit more, maybe, maybe because the company wants it versus the professional. And at the end of the day, the amount of job postings that are out there are staying steady. They're not following the drops, uh, in, as the economy did. Whereas other, roles are. I think one of the most interesting ones for me is IAM engineers. Yeah. Like that's the one, like the others I really get like analysts, if you've got 10 of them, you can lose, you know, two of them, you think you can lose two of them and it'll be okay. Or four of them and it'll be okay. You know, but like IAM, why would that be affected? And you're seeing that going up or going down? Down. Like you see it match the economy. So what I'm saying is that the, those roles that are dropping at the same time the economy is drop, you know, changing its changing its uh, motion. So it's um it's been a yo-yo with those roles, but you know we know we were in a shortage. The problem is this: the the yes, people are you know holding, laying off, doing certain things. But we already had a broken system, and so it's just that now more professionals are having to deal with that broken system than ever. And they're really seeing how broken it is. And so it feels terrible for them. Right. 
you yeah. know, like job searching and not having success doing it and talking to people that there's no fit or, you know, never mind the ghosting and the talking to recruiters that don't know security. And, you know, I mean, it's terrible. So do you, do you, uh, where's your, your spidey, spidey sense on the second half of the year? Do you think it's uh, soft landing? Do you think it's, where, where do you see it? I think it's going to be status quo. Like what, I think summer is summer and people are taking a little bit of time to, because they know the rest of this year is going to be do more with less or at least survive, <laughs> you know, uh, meaning it's not going to be new hires or getting relief or any of that. I do think that, um, that all will come with strategy preparation for that. Like we all, you know, everybody's sort of has, knows their landscape greater now uh, with time to think and, you know, figure out what's their next move. Uh, So I think that we'll stay status quo. And I think Q4, people are going to start really, you know, either implementing a plan or um, kicking, you know, getting ready to kick it off in the beginning of the year, because we've been, people are literally, this started last June, uh, people have been holding together less resources. You can't do that for too long. I think we're going to see breaches because no. yeah, you, yeah. you do more with less. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, especially if you're getting rid of those IAM engineers. I mean, all joking aside, I think uh, it's one of the most pervasive attack uh, vectors is the uh, breaching the identity. So anyway, that uh, Deidre, you uh, you have among many distinctions, you um, you're pioneer as a female in the cybersecurity space. And uh, it's obviously an experience I can share with you. I don't share that experience with you, but you uh, are rare in that you've been um, a founder, a CEO, and and, and highly accomplished in many different roles. So give us that perspective. Uh, Where are we on, uh, you know, inclusiveness and belonging of, of females? Where was it when you entered and where is it now? And how has it impacted your trajectory? Yeah, this is a real important conversation for me. It was, you know, I think I I can speak for a lot of folks my age where we didn't really realize, uh, you know, that that there was more of a problem than we knew. Uh, For me, growing up in my family, I was treated equal. Of course, running into those guys that I worked for for 21 years, it really was an equal playing field. And um, I competed against men and we vice versa. And we were pretty much 50, 50 all the time. Like, uh, so I didn't really get it until I founded cyber SN and people are like, well, how'd you do that? And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> what, what I'm coming, you know, I'm also from Irvine, you know, it's like, you didn't see that. And so, uh, that made me think. And then I realized, and I started looking at the numbers. I, I was horrified. Um, and so, uh, where are we today? Uh, we got a lot of work to do. I don't, I, I, I'm not going to pretend that the numbers are somehow great. They're not. Um, and I say pretend because I think that people want to think that things are better. And I want people to think we've got a lot of work to do because I get the phone calls. My firms get the phone calls. I'm the founder of Secure Diversity. People are struggling. Women are struggling to get the support. That being said, there's a lot of women out there that have taken these mentorship roles, men too, like programs that are out there, WESIS, Cyversity, Day of Security, Cyber Jitsu, like 
the list goes on. I'm sorry, sorry that you know we don't have time to list everybody. But my point is, there's programs, men are involved, so it's happening, but it just it's just now getting you know scale enough to make a difference. Like we're just entering that. And as a percentage, um, do, do you know off the top of your head is a percentage uh, representation now of females in the cyberspace? Problem is like you can't just put the percentage of it's like of what roles you know right. so, you know and what is considered cybersecurity like there's forty five job functions and so in leadership it's still less than ten percent it's right and and it, nothing matters to me other than that because not we won't move the needle if we don't have more people, at the, more women at the top showing, you know, being role models, working with men, showing how it all can be done for men and for women. It's actually, I, I started a SANS cohort last year, putting women in executive SANS programs, because that's where I see the bottleneck is right now. Uh, so we're going to nail it, all of us together. It's taking a hell of a lot longer than I want. And and I do think that we need more men. We're asking now to be co-conspirators, not yeah. allies, like to really stand up where you see the inequality. And other than that, we're, we're good to go. You know, yeah. my mom was telling a story of when she was, uh, uh, in a different space and executive admin, but it was only in the in the seventies. And you know, she was telling that common common to get catcalled as she was walking across the the, the work floor. Right, so that was a reminder to me of how recent those days were. Well, uh, you know, I was just speaking with the CEO of a, another company who was sharing that her daughter's now and just got her first job outside of you know, college and tech. And it's not the cat call, uh, you know, on the room. It's the, it's the text. It's the email. It's, it's still going on. Yeah, She's like, yeah, I yeah. Thought it was over. I didn't even think it could. Po-. And I am. So that's what I'm saying. Like, but I think that's my question for you is that one is obviously we're starting with a, uh, you know, we're behind on the pool of females coming into and in versus other tech. Because I had this at IBM where our IBM security division, we made a lot of strides on bringing in women and 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 other uh, uh, you know, diverse populations over the time I was there. But it was still generally lagging behind other divisions of IBM in other sectors of IT. So you can almost see a microcosm within IBM that cyber was just, it was harder, it was, it was behind. So one is the pool, but two, it's the environment once you get in. So when, do you think, you know, we got to work on the pool, we got to work on the pool up, up to the leaders, but do you think it is less friendly? I mean, that, that texting and, you know, women getting hit on at work through text and whatever, is that worse in cyber or is that just across all IT? I think it's the world. I wish I could see it was just technology. But yeah. And I love the sincerity of the question. It is, it is mind boggling, right? So when you think about it, it's like, how could it be? And like, you want to pigeonhole it to something uh, it's really society, even the professional society. You know what I tell, I found myself saying to people lately, it's like, didn't we all go from the playground to work? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's like, if it, meaning, and it's like, if it happened there, it's happening other places, it's happening all around us. It's amazing. And we don't even know because who wants to say anything? (laughs) So that's the challenge. And that's why I'm saying the co-conspiracy call is like, Hey, we, we need men to say something when they see it because we need that support. Yeah. 
allyship. Secure diversity, I found it, you know, not too long after people asking me, how'd you do it? Like, what's the secret? And then I realized that I represent under the 1%, found, not, just, not just founding, you know, CEO of a tech company, but self-funded, you know, used my money from being in this business and playing the game that brings in the big money. And so that's super rare, right? Stock option money in tech, making it work, right? All that stuff, never mind the big incomes. And there's two things I'm really proud of. One is the Day of Security event that conference, excuse me, that we hold. It's been five years now. Uh, it's both digital and in person. Uh, you know, many countries, not just the U.S., it's been free. It's 1,100 women, you know, on a regular basis digitally. So a uh, very powerful way to give the stage to women without pay for play, uh, sponsorship, and then also show these jobs and do workshops for other women as well as women that want to come in. So, and certainly, you know, underrepresented genders now. So super proud of that, the SANS cohort and just supporting the community in general. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. I want to um, draw to a close, keep going on forever, but um, Devo and CyberSN at Black Hat. So uh, we're doing some things together at the booth, some career counseling. I thought you could give folks a quick overview of that and then we'll draw this to a close. Totally. Well, brilliant idea, this knowledge bar, you know, like people want to talk shop, people want to get better at what they're doing and going to these conferences and um, having that offered at your booth is wonderful. So we've got knowledge bar, we've got SMEs in the space of careers of SOC analysts, and um, we've got a book. Uh, we've got lots of things that Devo has worked really hard as well as CyberSend to put together, and it's going to be awesome. Yeah, so we have a career guide and we have consultations for folks, one-on-one career consultations. Are you doing some of those? Are your team members? Uh... Oh, I'm committed to a couple of hours. I'm locked up in a Mandalay Bay suite, basically, oh, yeah, that's right. Thursday. Yeah. But I set aside two hours. Otherwise, I've got my managing directors that are uh, SMEs have been with me minimally six years. The rest are probably eight or uh, nine. So, uh, yeah, all the players are in town. And so we're going to be there. And for the SOC Career Guide, you wrote a chapter. What was your chapter about? So my chapter was a lot about, um, you know, emotional intelligence skills and communication skills, which is just huge for any role in business that really to excel and grow and develop, we must own those skills. Well, Deidre, you mentioned the word purpose in the beginning. We didn't spend a lot of time on it, but I think um, it's it's a word that I'm passionate about because I think it's, uh, if you have it, then uh, you you keep yourself uh, out of trouble, as, as my mom would say. Uh, and you seem to have an amazing purpose and role here in the cyberspace. So thanks for everything you're doing. Thanks for all the uh, the tips and walking us through your background and uh, really excited to collaborate with you at Black Cat. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Ditto. Thanks for the interest and taking the time as well, Mark. Really appreciate you and Devo. Cool. And uh, thanks to our audience for listening and be sure to tune in for the next episode of Cyber CEOs Dakota. Thanks very much. Take care.